Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Observer's Notebook podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. I want to thank you for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in a quarterly publication known as the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the Observer's Notebook, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as a dollar a month. If you feel even more generous, for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. And for a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Observer's Notebook handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. You can also join the ALPO for as little as $18 a year. For more information, you can find us on www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy and also the podcast. Yes, we have a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode. And now, this edition of the Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the Observer's Notebook podcast. We have a multi-repeat visitor on the podcast today, Carl Hergenrother. Welcome back, Carl. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. Um, anything to talk about comets. You know, I love them comets. But before we get into it, why don't you just give everybody a five-minute or two-minute introduction about yourself? Okay, yeah. My name's Carl Hergenrother. I'm, I live in Tucson, Arizona, where I work at the University of Arizona at the Lunar and Planetary Lab, which is the Department of Planetary Sciences. And, I mean, most of my background is, you know, astronomical observation, usually comets and asteroids. Uh, spent some time working at the Catalina Sky Survey, which is, you know, still an ongoing, one of the best surveys for discovering uh, new comets and asteroids. And currently I'm working as part of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which is a NASA mission to go to a near-Earth asteroid named Bennu and bring samples back to Earth. And we'll be talking about that on a later podcast. Yep. Okay, great. Now, tonight or today, we're going to talk about the comet of the century. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's you not what the media is You pretty much cursed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not the first. Why don't you tell us about Comet 46P, Comet Wirtanian? Wirtanian. Wirtanian, okay. Finished, actually. Ah. So, yeah, uh, 46P, Comet Wirtanian, uh, was discovered in 1947 by Carl Wirtanian, who was working at Lick Observatory. And he was uh, back, this is late 40s, early 50s, he was working on a project called the Northern Proper Motion Study, which was looking for nearby stars that had, you know, large proper motion, which means they were moving very rapidly across the sky. 
And during the course of uh, that survey, he discovered a number of asteroids and near-Earth asteroids, including five comets, one of which is 47P Wirtanen, which is going to make the closest approach it's going to make to Earth, at least in historic times, as far as we can tell, and will result in it being the brightest comet this year. That's fantastic. Now, I, I've read it, 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 it described as a hyperactive comet. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty small nucleus. I mean, it's a short period comet. It's got a pretty small nucleus, but it seems like it actually produces more gas and dust than you would expect for the surface area of the nucleus. Ah. Uh, similar to Comet Hartley 2, which I'm also going to talk about a little later as kind of a proxy for Wirtanen. And Hartley 2 was, uh, was the target of a NASA mission a couple of years ago. Right. But what they think is going on is that, you know, when, when you study comets, you'll look at the, das- the gas production rate you'll know the size of the nucleus, you'll know the surface area, and you'll be able to say stuff like 1% of the surface is active or 10% of the surface is active. For comets like Wirtanen or even Hartley 2, it seems to be greater than 100% of the surface is active. Hmm. You know, seems somewhat non-physical. But now that we've actually sent the spacecraft to one of these hyperactive comets, what they believe is happening is that these comets are throwing off not just the normal small dust grains, but large kind of conglomerates of dust that still have ices within them. And these kind of dust balls, almost, if you could say, within the coma, start sublimating themselves, almost acting like miniature comets as well. So that's why it actually appears that the comet is more active than it really is. Going back to the NASA mission to Hartley 2, if you look at some of the pictures, they, I think they called them like snowflakes. Mm. Look, that comet was surrounded by little snowball, little you know, little points that they believe are actually these uh these large kind of comet snowballs in a way, comet dust balls. This is interesting because this is a relatively short period comet, right? Yeah, it takes it's, you know it's a usual comet where it goes out to about the orbit of Jupiter, mm-hmm. so it kind of cycles from the Earth's orbit to Jupiter's orbit, and takes about five six years. Yeah, it seems it hasn't burned off all this extra material yet. It's interesting. The whole, it gives you a question if it's the same composition as most comets that we see. Right. So Wirtanen, when it was discovered, its perihelion distance was actually pretty far out. Um, it was more on the order of about one point six AU. And it's been steadily, after a series of close approaches to Jupiter, its its, it's uh, perihelion distance has steadily been stepping in. Oh, interesting. And right now it's at about 1.05, 1.06 AU. And it'll actually start stepping back out again. So by the time we get to about the year 2059, 2060, its perihelion distance will now be back out at 2 AU. So and that movement of its orbits just based upon its interaction with planets. Exactly. So it's very possible this is the first time Wirtanen has been this close to the sun, but you can't really say that definitively. There's a lot of chaotic, chaos involved, so it's hard to predict these things. Interesting. So what does it look like right now? So right now, Wirtanen is actually, a lot of people have been observing it with small telescopes. It's around ninth magnitude. Um, it is located fairly far south, um, not far enough south that you can't see it from the southern hemisphere. It's kind of in Fornax, which is one of those really empty constellations uh, south of Cetus, Pisces, Aries, that region of the sky. But it will be staying pretty far south until pretty much mid-November, and then it's going to rapidly shoot north, uh, coming out of Fornax into Eridanus, through Taurus, Perseus, Auriga, and eventually end up in Ursa Major. No, so it's going to be an evening comet? Right now, it's pretty much in opposition. It's near opposition. Okay. And so, but as it goes 
you know, basically as it approaches the Earth, it will be a little more on the evening side. Okay. Fantastic. So we'll have dark skies to see it as well. Yeah, and of course, you know, right now the prediction, and you have to take all these predictions with a little bit of grain of salt for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. and I'll go into them. But if you base its maximum brightness at this apparition on what it's done in previous apparitions, and this comet does appear to be rather well behaved, it should peak out around magnitude 3, maybe 3.1, 3.2, and that's around December 18th. Now, the thing is, we've had other comets come that were similar activity levels, say, to Vorton, that have come close to the Earth in the last couple of years. We've had an amazing run for period comets that have almost historic close approaches to Earth. And one of them is 103P Hartley 2, which we mentioned before is another one of these hyperactive comets. And Hartley 2 kind of gets just as bright, so just as active as Wurtman. And back in the October, November of 2010, Hartley 2 didn't pass quite as close. It passed within 0.12 AU, which is about 50% further away than Wurtman will pass to the Earth at 0.08 AU. Hmm. But it did get up to around fourth magnitude. But the thing to note was that the comet had just, I mean, it was, it was a very diffuse object. It's a very gassy object, not a lot of dust. I mean, there is some dust production, but it's not a very dusty object. It's not like, you know, like Panstar is a really good comet from a couple years back. A lot of dust. So Harley 2 ended up having a coma on the order of a degree across. So now imagine that you're looking at Wurtanen, December 18th, it's third magnitude, and you're going outside going, well, I can see fifth magnitude stars from my backyard, so third magnitude must be easy. Yeah. <laughs> Not when it's a degree in diameter. You know, twice the diameter of the moon. <laughs> right. So it's spread out over quite a, a large area. And Hartley 2, in fact, seemed to kind of underperform when it was at perihelion last time around. It seemed to run about a half magnitude, up to a half magnitude fainter. And it's possible it didn't. It's just when you're that diffuse and big and spread out, especially if you don't have dark skies, and very few of us nowadays have really dark skies anymore, you kind of lose the outer edge of the coma. So you're not really seeing all the coma that's there. And as a result, your you know your total magnitude estimate ends up being a little underestimated. Right, just because of the size that you're dealing with. Interesting. So... What, what will be the, what do you consider the best time, best locations when the comet will be put in the best? You said, what, December 18th, it's going to be the brightest? Yeah, pretty much at that time. Um, the moon will be an issue, so you have to, you know, yeah. you kind of have to observe at a time when the moon's, say, not in the sky. And um, because if there's any moonlight, you're going to have a hard time seeing the comet much at all. Um so, yeah, you're going to see, you know, already in the press, everyone's calling it the comet, the comet of the year, not necessarily the comet of the century, but the comet of the year. You know, obvious naked eye object. For most people, it probably won't be. It's kind of like almost like the same disclaimer we put for meteor showers. Okay. Sure, it'll be spectacular if you're out in the desert, you know, 50 miles from any lights or anything. But for the average person observing from the suburbs, it probably will be more of a binocular object or small telescope object. No, you haven't you said anything about a tail on this comet either. Right. And so, like, when Hartley 2 came close by, 2010, and even more recently, we had 252P Linear, which came in March 2016 and came really close to the Earth, was also of a comparable activity level to these comets. They didn't have tails. Or they had very, 
I mean, they didn't have much. They might have had some of a eye on tail, but not much. Not much in the way of a dust tail. And they really were just a big, diffuse ball about a degree across. Now, Wurtonen in the past has shown evidence of a fairly long, active ion tail. So it will be interesting to see if we, if Wurtonen will kind of turn into one of these lollipop comets, yeah. where you have the big blue-green head and then you have a little narrow ion tail. Right, right. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, so we're going to deal with the moon when it's at its brightest. So just time your observations around that. What equipment would you consider? Besides the naked eye, was there any optical enhancements you could do to make better observations? Yeah, I would probably stick with just, you know, small binoculars. Um, you know, if you go out there with your C8, you're going to end up, first of all, it's going to be much larger than your field of view. And in a way, you're going to be kind of looking through it. Uh, Good point. We had it, you know, over the last couple of years, we've had, a, you know, a nice run of uh, short period comets coming really close to the Earth. And some of them weren't quite as bright and active as Wharton is expected to be, like uh, 45p and 41p over the last couple of years. And they only got up to about 7th, 8th magnitude. And I know a lot of observers using small telescopes didn't even detect them. While looking in binoculars, they were easy objects. Yeah. So if you use too much magnification, you might actually just look right through it and not actually notice that gentle brightening towards the center. Very so I would say can naked eye, small binoculars, maybe a small wide-field telescope. And if you want to try your hand at imaging, again, you know, just a telephoto lens would actually, in a DSLR, you'd probably pick up a nice blue-green, you know, cometary ball in the sky. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's now, for, for the ALPO, you are collecting observations of the comet. Correct, yeah, we're, we're collecting uh, total magnitude estimates. We're collecting images and sketches as well. And if, if people, there, I know some people out there are starting to delve into spectroscopy, which for an object this bright actually makes it a pretty good target as well. So we're always interested in that sort of stuff too. But basically any kind of observations, they don't even have to be, you know, too exact. Um, if you just want to write down your general impression of what the comet looked like, that would be great too. Right, right. And your contact, contact information, information for anybody that wants to get a hold of you, or send you observations. Right, so I can be contacted at my Alpo email, which is carl.hergenrother at alpo-astronomy.org, which will be on the the podcast website there. And also there's a two amateur professional, actually there's a, a large amateur professional campaign going on, collaboration. Oh, no. out of the University of Maryland and the Planetary Science Institute. And both their websites are, what they're looking for really are, again, total magnitude estimates, as well as good images, because one of the things they, in their case, they want the high-resolution imaging, say, with a larger, say, C8 or C14-type telescope. They look for any kind of dust or gas jets near the nucleus, because they're trying to map out not only where these jets are, but what this tells us about the nucleus itself and its orientation in space, how quickly it's rotating, and whether or not that rotation rate is changing with time as well. So those will also be on the podcast page with links. It's not the only comet that's out there. Uh, we just had a 21P Jacobini's Inner, which is now fading, but there's also a 38P Stefan Ottermo, which is a comet that only comes around roughly every 38 years or so, coming back for the first time since 1980. And it'll be observable kind of in the Gemini Lynx area of the sky, about ninth magnitude. 
And another comet, 64 P Swift Carols, which is actually having pretty much its best return in recent times. And it'll also be around ninth magnitude, more in the Andromeda Perseus area. That's great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, Carl. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you next time. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our guest, Carl Hergenrother, for coming on and giving us an update to Comet 46P. Um, get out there and observe it. It's going to be very nice in the evening sky. We upload a new episode of the Observer or Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. And you can listen to us now on iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and also Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month where we receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producer of this podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon is link, as well as the link for the ALPO is in the show notes. And I'll also have uh, Carl's contact information and more information about the comet in the contact notes below. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at ObserversNBPod. You can find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And the podcast, like I said, has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.